Morning, everyone. Man, it's uh, it's been a, a interesting week, to say the least. And in prepping for starting a sermon series in, in First Corinthians, Chris and I are pretty excited about this one. Um, we were super excited about Romans, but I don't know. There was something about just like we felt just as we're moving through like Paul's letters and just. So, so with Romans, we, we got this example of Paul just expounding on the grace and the love and, and all of these things um, of Jesus and, and taking us through a kind of a deep systematic theology, uh, this, this study in, in, in what it is to, to know Christ and to have him. And, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing with a little different purpose. And we're going to see that as we get ready to read today. And so let's go ahead, if you've got your Bible with you. Pop it open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17 today. Uh, and if you've uh, um, not got your Bible, that's fine. Those words will be up here on the thing. I have just realized I need to make absolutely sure that um, my iPad is muted um, from last. For those of you that were watching last week, realized that I had gotten a, uh, a messenger phone call somehow through my iPad and everything worked out fine. It was a it was an interpreter that Leah and I had used one time in, or a couple times in Ecuador, and it was good to hear from him and to hear how his ministry is moving, and we'll continue to pray and, and be with Christian, uh, but it was just kind of funny that that happened in the middle of, of preaching, so we'll hopefully not have that happen again today. Let's go ahead and take a look at the Word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ." God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye, all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Well, I did also baptize the household of Stephanas, but beyond that, I, I, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, 
lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word today. We thank you for this time we have to be in it. We thank you for this time we have to, to begin this new study in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I pray, Lord, that as we, we begin this, that you would begin to open our eyes, open our hearts to what you would have us to know, what we'd have us to do, how you would have us to respond to you. Father, that you would bring in us a unity that Paul is calling for here uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, that you would bring our body of believers here at Calvary Heights Baptist Church in Martinsville, Indiana, this, this body of, of the church of God, that you would bring us to unity as you have called it, that you would have us cast out anything that would cause disunity here. Father, I pray that as you, we, we dive into it today, that it be you that is speaking through, our, through, through me, that you would just put me aside and your word be proclaimed. I thank you for this opportunity, and I pray, Lord, that you would just move mightily in us. And it's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. All right, so like I said, we are beginning a new sermon series through Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. Uh, Chris and I really would like to, to take us through both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, uh, but we're going to start out in the beginning, right? 1st Corinthians. And, and for us to better understand why the Holy Spirit led Paul to write these letters and, and why the Spirit led him to say things the way he said them, we kind of need to understand what Corinth was like at the time that Paul wrote the letters. Corinth was an old Greek city um, that had been destroyed at one point in time about a uh, I don't remember the dates now, but it had been destroyed and then it had been rebuilt by the Romans. And before it had been rebuilt, it was known for its art, it was known for its wealth, but it was also known for its um, sexual immorality, sexual freedom, um, just kind of how it lived its life was, was that way, that that was a very important role. Uh, in Paul's day, a central feature of the city was, was an ancient temple to the Greek goddess Athena. To worship the Greek goddess Athena, one of the things that you would do is you would visit the temple prostitutes. It was part of their worship culture even uh, within the city of Corinth. Corinth was also this very metropolitan, very cosmopolitan city for the era. It was, it was an important crossroad city. It was a port city. Uh, many people from the known world mingled there, worked there, lived there. Lots and lots of different religious practices were taking place in Corinth. Uh, and a lot of these pagan faiths became integral to how the local government operated, how to local festivals operated, how trade guilds and trade in the city operated, as well as just everyday life. And so Corinth was, was kind of a city, even in Paul's time, that embraced all the ideas from everywhere all at once. I'm okay, you're okay, I don't disagree with what you're doing if you don't disagree with what I'm doing, and everything should be fine. And that is the church, in which, or that is the city in which Paul and Prisca and Aquila and, and some of these folks had planted a church. And that's the kind of lifestyle these people were being saved out of as Paul is doing this. Right? And Paul, along with Prisca and Aquila, they spent about 18 months in Corinth planting the church and growing the church. And this was in the early 50s um, AD. Right? Paul, Paul was, uh, would, would leave Corinth to go do mission work in Ephesus for about three years. That's where Paul is writing the letter to the church in Corinth from. 
right? So he's, he's in Ephesus. He's getting reports back from Chloe's people about some stuff going on. Don't know who Chloe is, but she's got people and they're important. And Paul listens to them, right? And so he writes these letters from Ephesus as he's there for about three years. And, and the church in Corinth is struggling with some huge problems of division. There's some sexual immorality happening amongst the church. There's snobbery among the brothers, right? Um, they had also had major confusion about marriage and divorce uh, within kind of Greek society. There was a lot of common law marriage, a lot of common law divorce. If you just were tired of that person, you just literally, you could walk away. And when you walked away, that was as good as a divorce. There weren't papers and letters and legal proceedings. It was just you choose to live with somebody, you choose not to live with somebody. And, and so there was confusion about what God was saying about marriage and divorce within the church at Corinth. Uh, there was also some confusion about how people should interact with pagan practices. When you're in a city that is filled with a lot of pagan practices, and, and how do you do it? They, had, they, they were struggling with what orderly worship looked like within the, within the Corinthian church. And they also had some basic doctrinal concepts that were not really rooted well and grounded well. Things that we would consider simple, like the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. They struggled with that idea and that concept. So into this, this is, this is what the Spirit was leading Paul to write to the church in Corinth at, right? That, there's, that this is why he was led by the Spirit to do this. And there are five major themes we're going to encounter throughout uh, our study here through 1 Corinthians. We're going to see that the church is a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit and the people of the church should work for unity. That, that you and I, as, as a congregation, as a group of people, we are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, and we need to be unified in that. Right? The, churches, the, the, the Christian church should, should build up the church. The Christians should build it up. Right Now, when we talk about the church, we're not talking about bricks and mortars, studs and drywall. Okay? We're, we're talking about the people, the individuals, that we should build up the church, other individuals, by being sensitive to those with a fragile faith. We need to build them up in, um, by winning unbelievers through, through some culturally sensitive evangelism, understanding where they're from and where they're coming from and, and leading them to the Lord, understanding that. By conducting worship in a manner that unbelievers might come to faith, that our worship is, is orderly and it makes sense and it, it's, it's godly, right? We should build one another up by using the spiritual gifts we have to build up the church not the individual. Okay. Another key theme we're going to see here, and it's a big chunk of 1 Corinthians, is that the sexual relations from, that form a union between a man and a woman are as profound as the union between Christ and his church. Right? That, that, that unity there is it. And, and we honor that by confining sexual activity to marriage and what that will look like. And that, that's going to be a big chunk. Another thing we see that's important within the book of 1 Corinthians is that baptism and the Lord's Supper are important, but a personal trust in Jesus Christ through the gospel message and living for Him are more important than those two um, items. I, I totally lost the, the word there for a second, sorry. 
And the last one, the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead is a central component to our Christian faith and our practices. The understanding that Jesus really did raise physically from the grave on that third day out says a lot about who we are and what that means. Now, there's a couple of interesting memes or tweets that, that float around about Paul and his letters. And, and the one that I kind of like it says is there's, it states this. It says, there are two kinds of Pauline epistles. One, we are heirs through unfathomable grace to unimaginable glory. And two, I am as a personal favor begging you sick little freaks to act normal for just five minutes. And as we read into 1 Corinthians, we're going to see which letter Paul has here and which one he's written. And, and he does this. It's not that Paul isn't loving the people as he's writing those letters of the second type. It's just he's like, come on, guys, I taught you better than this. You should know better than what I'm seeing. And so we'll see as we dive into 1 Corinthians a little bit of both in that. Verses 1 through 3, we see a standard Pauline greeting. Paul tends to uh, open up all of his letters this way. Um, he states that it is the will of God that he's apostle. Right? This, is, this is really important for us to, to kind of take in a second here. This reminds us as the readers that, that God is sovereign over all matters. Right? Paul was not elected by the church to serve in this capacity. When Paul was called out, Paul was a murderer and complicit to murders, and had the arrest warrants for followers of Christ to be arrested and taken back to Jerusalem. He was headed to Damascus to do just that. And God said, stop it. Knock it off. Blinded him. And called him out of that to change. It wasn't the church saying, well, we like Paul's a good guy. Let's have him act as an apostle. That's not how it worked. God himself did it, Right? He was appointed by God to serve in this capacity. It is not of men's doing. It is God's doing that Paul is doing this. Right? This gives, gives the apostle some credibility. And, and, and as one of the points of disunity right, was which pastor the people followed here. And Paul's trying to remind them, look, I'm not somebody to follow. Like, I'm going to lead you to follow who I follow. Don't, that's not what this is about. Paul's telling them right away, God, God's word is true. God's word is authoritative. And it is the word of God that the people of Christ are to be loyal to. Right? It's to that end that we are to be loyal. You are called to be loyal to the word of God above being loyal to the one who delivers it. The deliverer of the word will pass away, right? Uh, I had a birthday this week. I hit true middle age. I'm halfway to 90, right? If I make, whew, if I make it there, that'll be good. But I'm just saying, I'm going to die. If Jesus doesn't come back soon, I'm going to die. The word of God doesn't. The word of God is eternal. Don't make an idol of preachers. Don't make an idol of their teachings. Turn to the truth of the word of God. Now, he states that Sosthenes greets him, greets the church here as well, right? Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. 
Sosthenes is is named in Acts chapter 18 as the leader of the synagogue in Corinth. As the leader of the synagogue, he came to Christ and he started to proclaim the gospel and he started to teach Christ in the synagogue. And the Jews wanted him punished for breaking Jewish law. So they take Sosthenes and they take Paul and they take him to Gallio. Gallio is the proconsul or like the chief judge in the city of Corinth at the time. And they want to take him to, to Gallio for a trial. And the Jews lay on their accusations. And Gallio hears it. And Paul gets ready to speak. And, and Acts says that Gallio interrupts Paul. And he says, I'm not even hearing this. This is a matter of your religious law, not our judicial law, not our community law. You all do what you need to do. And he, and he ignores the case. Well, in that, the Jews then took Sosthenes. They left Paul alone this one time, right? <laughs> they left poor Paul alone this one time, but they took Sosthenes and they beat him in front of Gallio for proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. So this is also lending some credibility to what's happening here. These are guys that have been beat up so that you could be saved, literally, physically beat up so that you may be saved. And Paul calls the church in Corinth the sanctified in Christ Jesus who are called to be saints together. There's there's some foreshadowing here of what's to come later in this letter that that Paul's reminding the church that we're to be united in Christ and living a life that shows we are being changed by him, right? To be more like him. Verses four through nine, Paul shows his thanks to God that the believers in Corinth have been gifted in speech and knowledge and spiritual gifts. And, and as we read on, there, there are going to be some problems with how the church uses these blessings, how the church uses their spiritual gifts. But they are still gifts from God. And God has enriched the people with these spiritual gifts. See, the, the, the people of Corinth value speech and they value knowledge. Corinth was known to even bring in like guest lecturers. Right? They were kind of an academic city. The, the people would, would be guest lecturers and they would come from all around the world as port, Corinth was a, was a port city and they could come in there. And, and the people of the city valued this kind of intellectualism. So the people of the church naturally spoke well and were learned people. And God then enriched those natural abilities after they'd come to Christ, so that he may be made known. That's what our spiritual gifts are for, to make God in heaven known to people on earth. But the people misuse those gifts. They misuse those enrichments. Paul still thanks God for the gift. The problem is not in the gift itself, but in the heart and in the manner of the use of the receiver. If I give a gift that's a good gift, but it's misused by the person who gets it, I can't do a lot about that. That's within them. So Paul still thanks God for giving the Corinthians that gift, even though they are currently misusing it. And it's a reminder to us, too, as as Paul does this, that our spiritual gifts are temporary, and they have a very specific purpose. 
They're temporary because their specific purpose is for the proclamation of the gospel and the edification or the lifting up and the building up of the church. See, when Christ returns, the gospel will no longer need to be proclaimed. We will see him fully then. And because his return is the ultimate edification, the ultimate lifting up of the church, our spiritual gifts will no longer be necessary. They're not something that we're going to carry with us into heaven. We will have things to do there besides just, I mean, but everything will be in honor and of glory and of worship to him. But, but we won't need those spiritual gifts to do that there. See that, and he also says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ when he returns. Those who are in Christ are already justified. Jesus has paid their debt, and he has taken their guilt, right? No one will be able to levy charges against them in the day of judgment. But here's, here's the dilemma. Here's the problem with what's happening in Corinth among the church. See, the Corinthian believers and the, have this behavior that is different than their justified and sanctified status before God. Right? They, they, they are saved, but they're not necessarily acting saved. Right? This is a caution to all believers. Just because you claim Christ doesn't mean that people see Christ in you. Just because you have Christ's forgiveness doesn't mean that you can go on sinning. To have the richness of fellowship with Jesus that, that we as followers of Christ desire because we are his people means that we have to surrender ourselves over to him. We have to surrender ourselves over to his commands. We live our lives seeking to be more and more like Jesus daily. And the Corinthian church is just not quite there yet. And then we get into verse 10. Now, starting with, with chapter 10 or chapter 1, verse 10, really through all of the first kind of quarter of the book, through chapter 4, verse 21, Paul begins to really address the concerns he has with the Corinthian church. Right? And the big thing boils down to one major thing. There is this inward pride that places value on outward appearance, that places value on outward eloquence instead of the true work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And that is what's causing some of the divisions. So the people have, have these haughty devotions to, in particularly, three itinerant Christian preachers as they've come through. Again, the problem isn't with the messenger. The problem isn't with the message. The problem lies in the hearts of the people who have received the message, right? And this is causing division among the church. The people of Chloe's household even state that it causes quarrels and arguments. When the church argues and quarrels, it, it does not look any different to a fallen world, right, that God has called us to proclaim his salvation to. We start to look just like the sinful world around us. 
When the church is quarreling and arguing, those who need the wisdom of God only see foolishness of man. And when the church is quarreling and arguing, what the lost world sees is the stupidity of those quarrels and of those arguments. Because if we're honest, look around the room, most of us have been church long enough to know that most church arguments are not of deep and important spiritual matters that demand individuals stick to their convictions. That's not where most church arguments happen. They're about petty things that probably hold absolutely no importance to the central truth of the gospel whatsoever. They're not even secondary or tertiary doctrines. They're not even second-level or third-level theologies. They are ridiculous and foolish pursuits. The specific arguments in the Corinthian church was about which passing preacher was the correct one to follow. Now, I just, just think about that a second. We've had a guy come. We, let's just pretend that in a year's time we have three revivalists come and preach three different revival services. And then the church breaks out and has an argument about which guy not just was the better of the three preachers, which, by the way, that would be a dumb argument, but has an argument about which guy we should follow more. Just saying it sounds ridiculous, right? It's it's just the way it is. Some people in the church at Corinth claim to only follow the teachings of Paul. Some claim to only follow the teachings of Apollos. Some claim to only follow the teachings of Cephas or the Apostle Peter, right? That's his, his, his other name. This is, this is like in modern times. If, if we would be standing around gathering and listening, saying, well, I only listen to sermons from David Platt. Well, I'm only going to listen to sermons from Tim Keller. Please, I can only listen to John Piper sermons. Right? Or, or what about if the ladies in the church were having the same argument and it was about ladies' ministry? Right? And you hear the ladies saying things like, well, if it's not a Beth Moore Bible study, is it even a ladies' Bible study? Oh, I can't sit through that. If it's not a Jen Wilkin Bible study, I can't know. That's just not happening. Well, you know I won't even be there unless it's Priscilla Shire. Right? This is, these are the kind of silly arguments, though that's taking place in the church, here's the thing to stop and think about. Absolutely none of those men are your local church pastor. Absolutely none of those ladies is your local church women's ministry director. Elevating one teacher over another keeps you from seeing some of their potential flaws. I ain't perfect. I can't even see perfect from my front porch most days. I got flaws out the wazooty. Guess what? Every other person who has been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ does too. We're growing more and more closer to him. The other thing that that does is as we are sanctified more and we grow closer to Christ, we start noticing more and more of our flaws. Right, But elevating one teacher over another keeps you from seeing some of their potential flaws. And it keeps you from seeing the benefit and the excellence 
of the other teachers and what they may have. We're all to take biblical teaching and hold it against the word itself. Right? See, there's danger in elevating a teacher of the word higher than the word. Right? This becomes this this form of, of hero worship. And you've got to remember that the higher the pedestal we place under the men, the farther they have to fall. Men were going to fail. Some men will fall. If your faith is placed in the teacher rather than in the word of God, when that teacher falls, your faith will fall as well. When you place your faith in the truth of the gospel message and you seek God's wisdom through personal study of the word, if or when those teachers fall and fail, your faith may be shaken a little bit. You could have a, holy cow, I wasn't expecting that moment. But your faith will not fall. You will still be there. And I get it. It is super easy to develop favorite teachers, right? I'm not going to lie, I listed several of mine there, right? It's easy to do that. But we got to remember that when we list our, when we just keep it to our favorite teachers, it keeps our study of the word narrowed, right? I mentioned six names that are, that are well known to most people in this congregation. But if we stayed to only those six names, We would miss out on the solid biblical teachings of pastors like Matt Chandler and Sam Albury or Alistair Begg. I love to hear little Alistair Begg preach, man. He's amazing. If our ladies stuck only to the names that I mentioned earlier, they would miss out on fantastic teachings by people like Jackie Hill Perry or Alyssa Childers. See, the thing here is, is we've got to remember is that Paul isn't naming people who preach a false gospel. The, the people that Paul talks about, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. These are all people who are preaching the truth. Paul and Peter and Apollos all agree on the central truths of Scripture and the gospel. They are all in equal merit as far as their teachings go. Well, see, what, what has happened here is, is the people in the church of Corinth have developed camps and traditions around these teachers. They're playing favorites. Church, this is, this is going to sound a little funny. Church, it is okay. And it is even beneficial to leave your camp or your tradition to read or study works of a Bible teacher who agrees on the central truths of Scripture and the gospel but may not be in your camp or your tradition. It's okay. See, it will, it will grow your ability to defend why you believe, what you believe about secondary and tertiary second layer, and third layer concerns in Scripture. Now, do your homework first. I'm not, I'm not saying just rush right out there and you start Googling people and, and YouTube and stuff. There's some danger in that. 
Do your homework on the individuals before you dive in. See what they believe. See where they studied. All right? As you listen to her, you read after them and see or hear things that deviate from scriptural truth. Stop. Turn away from it. If you know the word, you're going to know when something's not of the word. And it'll be evident. Now, see, another concern here for, for developing a camp of preferred teachers is they're not leaders in your local church. Now, I've just told to you that as a leader in your local church, I'm flawed and, 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 and not good all the time. I get that. But these folks are still not your local church pastor. They're not your local church women's ministry director. They don't know you. They don't know your family. They're not the ones who are praying for you and praying for your family. They're not the ones who are going to weep with you when heartbreak strikes. They're not the ones who will rejoice with you when good news comes. They're not the ones who fellowship with you, right? They're not the ones who are going to take that late night phone call or answer that early morning Facebook message. They're not going to do that. They're not the ones who may show up in the ER waiting room to pray with you. And they're not going to check in with you after a surgery. When a follower of Christ begins to follow a celebrity pastor or a celebrity teacher more than the teachers and pastors of their local congregation, they run the risk of being a sheep without a real flock. Jesus is the good shepherd, right? Local church pastors are these under-shepherds who by the grace of God lead the local flock through the local cobblestone roads and pastures to the good shepherd. It's the local pastor who protects the local flock from the wolves and thieves that await. Not the celebrity pastor you listen to on iTunes or watch on YouTube. Now, it's not explicitly said here, but there's a good chance that the church at Corinth's arguments about which preacher to follow had them neglecting the teaching of their own local church eldership. Which would mean that they were then neglecting the ministries of the local church and failing to meet the needs of the people God had called them to serve for the sake of the gospel. The same can happen to us today. Be cautious of this. Now, I'm not saying never never listen to a sermon by one of these folks. Never go out and seek out a conference where, where a, a famed, well-known author or a well-known Bible teacher is going to be at. What I'm saying is don't elevate them to the point that you miss the fact that they're not your pastor. Right? Paul addresses a fourth faction here. And it's kind of interesting. There was, a, there, was, there was the Paul faction, right? There was the Apollos faction. There was the Cephas-Peter faction. Then there were those who were self-righteous in their claim to, I follow Christ, right? That these folks were claiming to follow Christ, were claiming that they were better than the others in the church. We're above the stink. No, you're just stirring the pot. That they're still part of creating divisions in this. While yes, it is true that the church should follow Christ, the church is to follow him as a means of unity, 
being bonded together. These members were using this claim, I follow Christ, in this haughty manner that caused more division. Paul answers back with, is Christ divided? No, Jesus Christ is not divided and his church should not be either. See, these arguments gain the church nothing and they make the church look foolish. They keep the church from moving forward for the purpose of the gospel. And Paul uses the idea of an important part of what the church does to prove this point. He points to the ordinance of baptism, right? He even points out that those who follow him, that he's happy he didn't baptize many of them. He does this to show that the proclamation of the gospel to the lost in our community is the most important thing the church can do. Paul is emphatic about the proclamation of the gospel. I saw just on, on social media today, there was, uh, or maybe it was last night, a gentleman had said, you want to revitalize a church, reach the lost. You want to grow the church in unity, reach the lost. You want to you you see your church grow, reach the lost. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul said it before, before that other guy said it on social media. We need to reach the lost, proclaim the gospel. That is the most important thing the local body of Christ can ever do. I love that the Spirit led Paul here to say that Christ had sent him to, <coughs> excuse me, to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I love that. This is encouraging to me. It, it means that when I, I, I stutter, when I stammer, when I get choked up, or I just fumble over my own words, yet I proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ crucified, God is faithful to use that to His glory. Remember, Moses, first thing he said to God is, I don't speak so well. That's all right. I still want to use you. God's in that kind of, kind of business. That's what he does. God doesn't care if the words are pretty and smooth. If you've read the book of Proverbs, it really sounds like God doesn't want a lot of smooth words. That that sounds like flattery and it's tickling of the ear. And that's not where the heart of God is. God doesn't care if the words are pretty and smooth as much as he cares about them being true to Scripture and from a heart motivated to love Jesus Christ. Proclaiming the gospel message is key to the church. The methodology that is used, the presenter who does it, these are not as important as the message itself. Telling a lost world there is hope in Jesus Christ is the most important thing we can do. We have all sinned. We all need rescuing. God, in his love for us, sent us a rescuer. That rescuer is Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And in doing that, he willingly became the sacrifice that would appease the wrath of God and atone for your sins. He was raised three days later to show that death has no power over him or those who follow him. And when we trust in Christ 
and we repent of our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive and rescue us from our sin. That's the message. That's the news. That's what we're to proclaim. And we see here in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that, that, that we should, as a, as a body of Christ, be cautioned here to not allow silly differences about preference or teachers become quarrels and arguments. Because when they do, they distract us from the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It cautions us to be aware of, of potential hero worship within ourselves rather than of true Christ worship. And as we pray, we should all pray to have a unity centered around the proclamation of the gospel. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you so much for the wisdom that it imparts to us. I pray, Lord, that as a, as a body of believers that we be unified under you. That while there are, are wonderful authors, wonderful pastors that many of us listen to, myself included, Father, let us not elevate them above you. Let us not elevate them above the truth of the word. Let us keep focused on what you have called us to do here in our community and that is proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ center us around Jesus his gospel message and the proclamation of it